in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry. Brian, are you excited to hear all the Christmas music in the air? You know, I, I do one thing every year where I do a deep dive into, and I call this practice, uh, Christmas music I can stand. And it's usually instrumental, and I, I, I just yeah. find out what's new out there, and then I just slowly pick away like Pandora and figure out what, what it is I can actually tolerate. So you curate a little Santa's list of the of the good list of music. I do because I got tired of fighting with people about playing, you know, holiday music. I have to listen to it all day every day at work, so I was like, "Listen, uh. you guys got to you guys got to give me a break when I get home." But of course, they're in the spirit. So, yeah, I basically take about a week and I curate like a, this year's Christmas playlist that I won't shoot myself in the face over. Oh, that's good to hear. I'm I'm happy to report that Wham's classic Last Christmas is getting covered to death by all the young recording artists out there, which means that they appreciate it. All I've heard, like, I, I can't tell you how many young employees I have. And they're like, have you ever heard of Kate Bush? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. yes, yes, yeah. I have. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Would it surprise you to know that I was once considered young and beautiful? <laughs> right. <laughs> Brian, tonight is a great night in part because we've got a great guest. You will know his voice from the podcast, How the West Was Cast, or maybe you've interacted with him in Salt Lake City because he is the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Dr. Andrew Patrick Nelson, how are you tonight? Very well, sir. Thank you for having me. Very glad to welcome you on. Is, is Christmas season just all over the place in snowy Salt Lake? Absolutely. Uh, it's not especially snowy right now, but the Christmas season is upon us and, and really has been upon us since November 1st. As soon as anyone has a chance, just climb up in the attic and grab those decorations. Time to pull them down. So, Andrew, you're in the Wild West. Okay. And your faithful horse is your companion. Okay. What did you name your horse? Hmm. Well, uh, as uh, Lucas Askew tells Gary Grimes in the Culpepper Cattle Company, you don't put a name on something you might have to eat. Oh, so you are taking the practical way here and just saying, you know what? Better not get too attached. Yeah, I think that's good cowboy advice. <laughs> but that's that's pretty smart. Brian, did you take that same advice or did you give your horse a name? Uh, no, I, I've, I've always sworn up and down that if I ever had a black dog, I'd name it Jessamy. So if I ever have a black horse, I'd name it Jessamy. Jessamy? Yeah. Is that like, is that a special name in your family or history? No, it was a, it was a World War I children's book, uh, or the protagonist in a World War I children's book by Barbara Slay. 
anyway, it's like a little golden book, but it had World War One themes due to the, the, the time that it was uh, published. The timing, yeah. Anyway, uh, the main character was a little girl named Jessamy. Uh, that was later incorporated into the Sandman series. It's actually the name of the Sandman's Raven. So uh, that is a very co- cool answer. Co- co- co-purposed, but yes, I, I was familiar with both and I've always liked the name. Good answer. Well, I'm in a unique position here because I've named several horses. The first was Cerberus Appleby. Uh, the second was Julius Pringles. The third was Dorothea Bramblejack. The fourth didn't live long enough to name. Uh, and the fifth, I named Usain Bolt the horse. Uh, now, I never had a chance to name that fourth one, but I feel like in this scenario, if I had to pick like the most beautiful name, I'd go with December Bride. Uh, so what is the last movie you saw, Andrew? And it does not have to be in theaters. Last movie that I saw was uh, Predators uh, nice. from 2010. Uh, Nimrod Antel, talented director. Adrian Brody and Alice Braga. My son and I are working through all of the Predator films. I think we're going to skip The Predator and go right to Prey, but we're three films in now. I don't, I, I don't remember hating Predator. I think Predators was probably the best thing out until Prey. Prey is something that's on my list because I don't watch a lot of new things. Uh, but I actually did see uh, the Predators movie with Adrian Brody in theaters because uh, I, I like Adrian Brody anyway. So I, It's not like I feel like he can do no wrong. I just like him. I had to take a time out about five minutes into Prey and make sure the dog didn't die. I, 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 right. I, have a, I have a thing about dog deaths in, in films, and I was like, man, I, I don't know if I can make it through this if, if something happens to this dog. So spoilers be damned, I went ahead and looked it up. And I said, <laughs> does the dog die in prey? And everyone's like, no, it's safe. And I'm like, sweet, we can continue. <laughs> sweet. Andrew, are you familiar with the website doesthedogdie.com? No, no, I am not. I was actually just about to ask if there was such a website. It exists, and apparently, too much a plum. It's very well regarded, apparently spoiler-free. Uh, something to just kind of take that, right. wipe the sweat off the brow. It, like, okay, I think we're going to be fine. And it makes me feel better, because I, now I know that there are not just, like, a few of me out there. There's apparently a lot of me out there where I'm just like... There's a lot. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people that need to know that. I've, what was the last movie you saw, Brian? All right, so this is kind of a weird one, and this is one that, like, I hesitate to recommend to people, because it, it really just takes a, a certain kind of enjoyment to, to like a movie like this. I watched one called... Song of Granite. It's about a a traditional Irish folk singer in his life. And uh, it was, it was a great movie. Um, It's not something that's going to keep you on the edge of your seat, but it was really beautifully rendered. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It just, uh, that was, that was something I had earmarked for a while and I finally got to sit down and watch it. You had mentioned this to me or sent me something about it. And I think I remember seeing the cast list was full of some very Gaelic names, meaning that we've got some authenticity to that cast. Yeah, the uh, the folk singer's name is Joe Haney, and he's somebody that that I listen to a lot of my Christmas music. As a matter of fact, is is Celtic in in origin. But uh, yeah, he's uh, he's uh, known for just vocal singing, like not a lot of uh, uh, instrumental accompaniment. And it's it's just a fascinating movie, black and white. It's very stark in its landscapes and, and, and everything. So it, it definitely captures a, a, a very non-green feel for the Irish Isle. Hmm. Well, that sounds like a recommendation. I don't have one of those. 
My most recent movie was uh, from 2022, uh, Karen Gillan and Aaron Paul, starring in Duel, uh, which I, I could tell you all the premise of it, but then you might actually want to see it, uh, which is perilous, because it's not very good. It is art, question mark, and, and maybe that's what gives it some value to, to, to the people involved in it, was they were going for something in particular. Um, but it's D-U-A-L, though it does, uh, it does weigh heavily on a dual D-U-E-L. And Karen Gillan plays two roles. So uh, it's just a, an interesting thing. I don't recommend it. Fair enough. Uh, speaking of movies to recommend, though, Brian, what are we watching tonight? Uh, we are going to watch 1966's The Professionals. The Professionals, starring Burt Lancaster, Lee Marvin, Robert Ryan, Woody Strode, Jack Palance, Claudia Cardinale, and Ralph Bellamy. Uh, this was released in 66 and grossed $19 million domestically. Uh, according to TheNumbers.com, it placed ninth in the box office that year, ahead of Grand Prix and behind Alfie. The number one movie that year, I've heard of this before, The Bible. <laughs> the IMDb rating is 7.3, however... On Rotten Tomatoes, we have much higher percentages. Critics give it 89%. Audience score gives it 91%. So people look at this quite favorably. It garnered some nominations at the Academy Awards. Best Director, Richard Brooks. Best Screenplay, uh, Adapted from Another Medium. And uh, Best Cinematography, also nominated for Best Motion Picture. And Most Promising Newcomer at the Golden Globes. Now, Andrew, this found your way onto the short list that you provided to us. And, and we chose it. Had you ever seen it before? I had. I've seen this film uh, a number of times. I've, of course, seen every Western, uh, but this one I have seen more than once. And for the, we'll say, the project of this podcast, I, I don't know how frequently, maybe it's all the time, that you are sort of critically assessing Western movies, but what were you? What were your expectations coming in this time? Uh, so coming in this time, so it's been a couple of years since I had uh, seen it. I put it on the list because I think it's an important film in the development of the genre. I think it's a good film, but I think because of its place in history, because it's following certain films and certain other films come after it, probably name those titles later, tends to be overlooked. Uh, so I think this is a, just a great Western to recommend. So I'm, I'm glad you gentlemen were interested in chatting about it. Absolutely. Well, I was interested. I like to choose things I have not seen before. Uh, so I'll tip my hand. This was new to me. Um, so my expectations, are, it's very easy when something is nearly 60 years old that you can uh, avoid spoilers and trailers. Just find the movie, turn it on. That was easy for me. What about you, Brian? You, had you watched it before? I had never seen this. Uh, I used to just never watch old movies. I would watch anything current and, and you know, within 10 years or so. But even diving back into the 80s, I had a harder time watching older movies. So I just, you know, somewhere in the, the tw you know, early 2000s, I was just like, nah, you know, I don't need to watch old film. I can just stick around with, you know, what's current and, and live There's a plenty of new stuff, li live a happy life. That was stupid. <laughs> I, uh, I, I've slowly eroded, uh, that issue in my brain. And now I'm really, really dig. I actually watch more classic movies now that I watch current ones. And, uh, so yeah, that's one of the reasons I jumped on this because, um, older Westerns is a uh, vacuum for me. I don't have a whole lot of experience with them. And uh, yeah, I was super excited to, to dive into this one. 
Well, we might have the perfect guest who's got some experience with westerns. He did say he I saw it twice, said, or more than once. Excuse me, more than <laughs> so, once. Right, right. Um, well, I've got this this question we typically ask about a lot of movies, but I wonder I wonder if it's different for westerns in general. The question is, Andrew, does the movie hold up? But there's like a there's like a subtext to the question, which is, do western movies hold up differently than other movies? Mm. That's an interesting subtextual question. I think the movie absolutely holds up. I think it has, you know, a great story, compelling performances, a number of really well executed action set pieces, interesting twist. So those are many characteristics we would describe to good cinema. Uh as for that, yeah, subtextual question, um, I think I, I don't know if Westerns are that different than most other movies, most other old movies in, in terms of being able to hold up over time. I think Westerns may enjoy certain advantages in that because they're already set in the past, people aren't necessarily judging the films against standards that they're more familiar with. So you can probably get people That's to- That's kind of where my head went, is yeah. that there's, uh, maybe you call it the benefit, but the, the benefit of the period, you know it has to fit into a certain period. Or at least it generally does so. So that makes sense to me. Brian, did you feel that this movie held up? I think I would I would back the idea that because a Western is naturally set before the time it was filmed, I think there is some shield cover there. Um, I don't there wasn't anything in this, you know, outside of the, the statement, do you have a problem working with a Negro? But I feel like that would be a, a statement that would be made at that time. So you know, there's in in a time where we nitpick everything. I I think that we can probably leave mm-hmm. westerns alone. It's probably fair to say that if that statement didn't come up, it would be seen as uh, out like that would be odd to not ask that question in that particular standpoint. Uh, I'll make it three for three. I also think it holds up, uh, and I also enjoyed it for my first watch and my second watch. I watched it twice in two days, um, and. I, I will say occasionally my eyes will wander, whether that's to another screen in my hand or to something else going on outside. Uh, but uh, I think the, the movie demanded my attention the second time uh, just to I wanted to make sure I caught the things I was supposed to catch. It's nice when you want to watch it a second time. Not every movie on this podcast is in that category. But we want to talk more about the movie, but we're going to do that after our ad break. Go and watch the movie. Come back. When we do, Brian is going to spoil the movie with his plot summary. Uh, So we'll see you after the break. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we are back. We're going to cover the professionals here. We're going to start with a plot summary. Brian is going to describe what happens in this movie. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. 
Then you want to listen to the next hour. Brian, take it away. A wealthy Texan, J.W. Grant, contracts the services of four men, all of whom are experts in their respective fields, in order to go into Mexico and retrieve his kidnapped wife. The woman in question is being held for ransom for $100,000 by... Jesus Raza, a Mexican revolutionary turned bandit in the closing years of the Mexican Revolution. Henry Rico Fardan, a weapons expert. Bill Dolworth, an explosives expert. Hans Erengard, a horse wrangler. And Jake Sharp, a trained scout and tracker, make up the team sent into the painting hills to rescue Maria. Both Farhan and Dolworth had fought alongside Raza in the revolution under Pancho Villa. They enter Mexico and witness Raza and company attack a government train and follow it to the end of the line. Once there, they locate the camp and come up with a plan of fast, violent action and distraction, only for Farhan and Dolworth to witness Maria about to willingly make love to Raza. Realizing that something was amiss with their task, they knock out Maria and spare Raza's life and flee toward the border. Raza and his men relentlessly pursue them into the hills where Dolworth makes a stand to give the others time to escape. In his encounter with Raza, he kills all of the soldiers, including his one-time lover, Chiquita. During the fight, both Dolworth and Raza are injured. The others make it to the rendezvous with Grant's men when Dolworth appears having survived and spared Raza once again. There is a confrontation with Grant, and he is exposed as the one doing the kidnapping, and the professionals turn their backs on a fortune to let Maria leave with Raza as they ride back into Mexico. And it's a long ride. We know that there's the, the harsh realities of the desert, and we've got this story right in the middle of it. Now, the movie's called The Professionals. And Brian, you said that there was a plan to get down there. And then I think we immediately jump into, well, we know how we were going to get here. And I think we're going to figure some stuff out. Uh, They'd have to get back. And it's a long way back. Andrew, we start with a plan. I I like this roundup of professionals, the, the rounding up the posse branding up the gang, and only two of them know each other in this instance. This is kind of a comfort for Western fans. Yeah, the film is certainly of its time uh, in giving us a, a plot about a diverse group of professionals brought together for a certain task. Uh, this movie comes in the wake of uh, another film in that vein, The Magnificent Seven, which came out in 1960. It's John Sturges's American Western remake of Akira Kurosawa's The Seven Savarai. And then it anticipates later films like The Wild Bunch. So these are films about guys who kind of recognize their days and ways as Westerners are numbered. Modernity is here, the century is turned, but they see opportunity and mercenary exploits in in Mexico. And I think from what I understand, the the two pals, Dullworth and Rico Fardan, they, they've done some work south of the border before involving themselves in the business of war. Brian, uh, this is something you, you brought up that you, you know that he has a, a past relationship with uh, Cece Chiquita, uh, who we don't get enough screen time of. Um, but we've got, as part of their past, we learn a little bit about them. But really, when they all kind of show up on the train uh, together, we're going to learn about the plan. Uh, they kind of have to learn each other pretty fast. I think that comes a- a- across quickly. 
Yeah, I don't think there was any real, like, it, it's kind of one of those things that even without a reputation or something, he's kind of reading off everybody's resume and they're all like, ah, mm, yeah. Mm. It, when you put a, a group of guys like that and you're talking about that kind of money, I think there's a, a at least a, some understanding that they know what they're doing. At least as long as Sean Bean's not in the room. Uh, that's crazy. We, we watched a movie on this podcast where Sean Bean survived. Uh, that's oh, no the craziest kidding. thing of all. <laughs> and, and it was another uh, gathering of, of mercenaries to a to achieve a goal. So that's, yes, it that's, it's been a common theme this fall. And, you know. Well, you know, as, as I said, it, it's certainly, you know, some historians of the Western would say that this film is emblematic of a fundamental shift in the Western as we move away from lone gunfighter characters defending society to groups of professionals who can only exist apart from society taking on these kind of mercenary jobs and who you know aren't really fighting for any greater cause they're they're fighting for themselves they just enjoy battle they enjoy the companionship so this film is again of its moment in that respect the the life the camaraderie they they come together we have to bust Dolworth out of jail. And uh, J.W. Grant says, yeah, sure thing. We're going to do that right away. You get on the train. I think we learn that Fardan is making $40 a week. So what are we looking at? $10,000 in gold? Is it, You're going to be set for life. Am I right? Yeah, if not for life, uh, then it, it, at least for a few months, depends on how many, uh, I guess, brothels south of the border you plan on visiting. Now, that's interesting that you bring that up because... We have very few like instances, maybe even none, of gambling of inside a saloon. We don't get those creature comforts in this movie. No, these are these are men out in the wilderness, and the society is one of professionals. Brian, what did you think about the harshness of the landscape that we are thrust into? You find yourself uncomfortable. At least I. Yeah, I, I especially think that you know when um, uh, Hans, it was Hans that goes down with heat, right, early in the film. Yeah, especially in that scene, like I was on the couch, you know, it's, it's 20 degrees here in Spokane. So I was on the couch under a blanket and I'm watching that scene and I'm like slowly (laughs) taking the blanket off. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it it is, it's true. And, and the locales that they use to film this like death Valley and the desert outside of Vegas and, and places like that. I mean, they really do inspire a, an increase in body temperature just by watching. Every winter, I do watch The Hateful Eight because it makes me feel extremely cold. I like being cold. Oh. So uh, our, our men have to go... The, the, I would say the first battle is against the elements. Uh, you, you do mention that, that Hans uh, faints. Uh, there's got to be enough rations and supplies for the people and the horses. Is that the whole reason that Hans is a part of the crew because you got to have someone that can handle the, the horses. Yeah. I mean, you get that really interesting division of labor that you already talked about. So you have the dynamite explosive expert, you have the tactician, you have the scout. And then in, uh, Aaron guard, you have the, the seasoned horseman, the guy who knows animals, knows horses, knows what it takes to take care of animals, to get you where you're going and then make it all the way. And interesting, there's a lot of you know, interpersonal drama centers on Robert Ryan's character, Hans um, Erengard, as a kind of you know, potential weak link in the chain, so to speak, because of his 
uh, you know, affinity for his animals and his disgust at some of the brutal measures he observes both his new companions as well as the bandits undertaking. And of his companions, we've got we've got Dolworth, who is the one who suggests that the best thing to do would be to put these horses down. But you mentioned the scout, and we're talking about Jake Sharp here, who I believe in description, he might even be, based on something that you read, described as American Indian or Native American. He might be. Is that correct? Yeah, there's an there's an kind of implication that he's um, maybe like a like an Apache scout. Makes sense given the Southwest setting. Common thing for scouts to have some kind of Indian ancestry in the Western. I, I did. I did that see it refer. Like I saw people non-committal on it, like saying he was just a, a good scout and tracker. And then I saw people bringing the native aspect into it. So I, I never, you know, I I didn't see anything super definitive on that. But it was kind of a, you know, like you said, implied to a certain degree. And he was also a star football player at UCLA. Woody Strode. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, he has a he has a remarkable life story. He's an amazing athlete and has a, a really good and important screen career. Uh, he's in John Ford's stock company, so we see him in, in a number of Ford's famous westerns. He has an important role in the Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. He has a, a starring role in Sergeant Rutledge, and then he goes on after films like this to appear in. Films like Once Upon a Time in the West, and then a number of Italian Westerns. But we did, we did learn uh, that you know we bring them together, and there's an interesting comment brought up by I believe it's J.W. Grant when uh, he's pointing at the newspaper article saying you're going to go after Jesus Raza, or as he says, Jesus Raza, uh, where he asks, I believe he asks Rico Fardan, who's wearing his cardigan and his uh, campaign cover, do you have any problems working with a Negro? Uh, Brian, did you catch Yeah, this? yeah. And it, it's one of the things that, that I kind of raised an eyebrow at because after pointing out that, you know, on a newspaper, here's him riding with Pancho Villa in the Mexican Revolution, he then asks if he has a problem working with, you know, an African-American. And you're just like, that's kind of a dumb question. And and you kind of see it on Lee Marvin's face. Like, like yeah. can we, no, I, I can think, we continue? I think that's actually... Yeah, that, that, so that scene isn't you know so much like a, something uncomfortable because it's from the 1960s. I think the scene works within the context of the movie. It's an early indication of what kind of man Grant is, that maybe he isn't all that he suggests that he is. But it, it, it's also kind of a, a moment that brings them together. The look on Lee Marvin's face, just the disdain at being mm-hmm. asked the question, because it's just... We know in that moment that race, color, creed is of no consideration to these men. What matters is ability. Yeah, and we get to see that ability on display as they they go further south. I think if I looked at the map, I tried to zoom in on it a little bit. They mentioned something about El Paso. From the map, it looks like they might be south of Laredo, but essentially they're they're going towards the Sierra Madres. Something about Mexico. Something about like those mountain ranges. I, I I wouldn't be able to distinguish between where they shot in California, Nevada, and you know the uh, the smaller you know the provinces uh, on your way to Monterey. Like I don't I don't know that stuff. It feels very real, doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean t- t- to be honest, ge- geography is something that westerns often play 
fast and loose with. Monument Valley is the typical <laughs> example. We all know that Monument Valley is in southern Utah, northern Arizona, but it can be it can be wherever it needs to be. It's just the West. And you know, similarly, the, the kind of southwestern landscapes we see in this film, I, I don't think most viewers are going to question whether or not this actually is Mexico. Uh, the, the West isn't, you know, it isn't really a historical space in these films. It's more of just an imaginary one. I, I do, I do, only, I think of only one time that the geography of a movie has ever really bothered me, which was a Hallmark Christmas movie called something like Christmas in the Smokies. Now I'm from the Smoky Mountains, and I know that they're covered in trees and green and luscious. But they shot it in California because you can see the peaks of the Rocky Mountains behind them. And uh, that was what made me turn it off, if not for the dismal writing and terrible dialogue. Uh, so this does feel like we are in hard Mexico. And uh, we, we even hear from Fardan, you know, I think it was Hans who says, how does, how does anybody even learn to live here? And, uh, you know, men tempered like steel. They're a tough breed. These are men who have learned to endure. I want to ask generally to both of you, how do you feel about the way this film portrays the Mexicans? I don't think anything really stood out egregiously. Um, I do think that there is a a old golden age of Hollywood standard for how they react in situations. It's the big grin, the, you know, cock a gun, a little bit more, uh, feral maybe like they seem a little bit more aggressive than usually your your cool handed gunslinger uh protagonist but other than that you know raza didn't have that so you know it was one of those like henchman versus leader kind of dichotomies i don't know that's that was kind of yeah i mean it it is uh, of the period and that it it is on the one hand still indulging in certain stereotypes, the, the sleepy demeanor, the, the broad expressions that you've talked about. But at, at the same time, what we actually see is a, a portrayal of, of something like a, a society, a Mexican society, a genuine community, albeit a, a bandit one. And the, the film is ultimately you know, sympathetic towards these people and, and their cause. I should probably point out too that uh, uh, Jack Palance was not Mexican. To, to, to the best of my knowledge. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, incredibly uh, Ukrainian. You know, Eastern European. Not Vlad- you know, Vladimir. Sadly, <laughs> you know, it, it, what we call <laughs> brown right. face you know, remained commonplace in Hollywood um, much later than blackface did. You know, Burt Lancaster, right. one of the stars of this movie, plays uh, a Mexican in a, a Western a few years later called Valdez is Coming. So it's, it's certainly indicative of some historical blind spots. Yeah, and uh, the, the purpose of the question wasn't meant to shine a light on the habits of Hollywood were at the time. I think uh, we covered last year, maybe even two years ago, we covered um, West Side Story, <laughs> and we had that still going on as well. Uh, that was actually 15 years before that. But um, e- even still, the, the, it's easy. I think it's easy to have. You have Mexicans with a pistola in one hand and a botella in the other. And there's kind of one thing on the mind, which is we're going to go through the, the sack and pull out the liquor, we'll pull out the cigarillos. And we're gonna, the, the, it's, it's, it did seem a little bit of um, a leading on that, but that was kind of the time. So this is, well, this I is think meant like to my, uh, drop a bomb. General. 
perspective on these is, you know, this is a movie from the 1960s that is quite liberal in its sensibilities. I mean, the, the Woody Strode moment that we talked about earlier is indicative of that. And I think also, is, I, I don't think that Raza's name is just coincidental. I mean, I, I think he's generally meant to represent, you know, La Raza, the, the people. And to have Mexicans treated as a distinct society with value is you know, imperfect, but an important development in terms of Westerns. We do learn, and it comes late, but we do learn that Maria and Jesus are childhood sweethearts, and Jesus was a stable boy, and Maria has always loved him. And in the end, the, 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 the big millionaire is the bad guy. Uh, <laughs> surprise, surprise. And he's the one that kidnaps her away. It, it makes me look at the response it makes me, it, the second watch is nice for this movie once you know the truth. Because it, it, if, you, if you flip a, the, the focus a little differently, then what we have is a team of professional kidnappers coming to, to, to fake an explosion, like an attack from the Federales, and then kidnap a woman away from where she actually wants to be. So all of the response back from our, we call them banditos... But the response from these people is to, well, these people just, just stole our, our, our master, like our, our, the, the man that we, uh, that our, our leader just stole his wife away. Um, and so the response is kind of appropriate yeah. here. I mean, this, this film isn't, you know, it isn't the searchers in that it doesn't take too seriously this idea that, well, you know, maybe, maybe to these folks, we're the bad guys. The, the Professionals is, you know, on balance, a somewhat lighthearted quite witty film. It's an action film. But at the center of it, it does ask that question, you know, who, who are the good guys? And that's actually the film kind of, you know, hinges on that question, which is posed explicitly by uh, Bill uh, Dolworth in the film. Brian, what do you think about Dolworth here? Because I remember that line and there's a lot of great lines in this. Uh, how do you think about our leading man? Or w would you call him the lead man? My, my eyes almost always go to Lee Marvin, but how do you feel about Burt Lancaster here? I, so without, without spoiling any of my superlatives <laughs> or anything, um, <laughs> one of the most exciting things about this film for me was the fact that Lee Marvin was in it because one of the few older movies I had seen at a younger age was Dirty Dozen. And it, it endeared that, uh, that character uh, his persona uh, to me for a really long time after that. So I was like, Oh, it's a Lee Marvin movie sold. <laughs> but uh, so uh, no, or I, or I guess I should say, I agree with you that Lee Marvin is where my, where my mind goes in terms of a lead. I don't know if it damaged my perception of Burt Lancaster or not, but doing my readups on this film and the fact that he butted heads with Lee Marvin so much, I don't know if that like, put me off on Lancaster a little bit, but I liked their camaraderie. I think they did an incredible job of not showing any friction between the two of them. I wanted to say that I didn't see it on. Yeah. At all. Yeah. So, and, and even the, the conflicting reports about what the, why they were butting heads is weird to me. So it's just one of those things where I, I think that you had to have both of them. I think you had to have the two kind of contrasting, you know, one's the kind of sagely mentor, even though I think Lancaster is older than 
and Marvin in this. Uh, oh, but really? he, he, he comes across as, is you know, like the, almost a father figure. And maybe it's because of the, you know, running fast and loose and sleeping with other guys' wives and stuff that, you know, Lancaster's doing a lot of the things you would expect the, the protege to be doing in a lot of these type of films. But uh, no, I absolutely love their, their bouncing back and forth. And then obviously that, that the fight scene at the end where, where Lancaster, uh, you know, holds the ground against, you know, o- overwhelming odds. Right. Um, you you got to have them both. I mean, you just do. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, there's, there's certainly important precedents in earlier Westerns where you have a, a, you know, a more straight laced character and then you have a, kind of a wild card and they have this you know good cop bad cop relationship you know I, so one precedent would be a film called vera cruz from 1954 where it's burt lancaster again and the kind of roguish role and gary cooper's the more straight-laced cowboy the gunfight at the okay corral another burt lancaster picture from 58 would be another example where lancaster plays the straight-laced wider but kirk douglas is the more uh, eccentric doc holiday character so that you know that's kind of a, a staple of westerns in this part yeah, so Lan- Lancaster's 11 years older than Lee Marvin. Yeah, yeah what, was, what, what was Marvin? Was he 40, 42, 44, something like that? Yeah, I think he was 42, and then uh, Lancaster's... He had white hair coming out the womb. Well, it, it, you know, it's, he's one of those guys like Sean Connery. It's like either you saw Dr. No or you assume Sean Connery always looked like Entrapment. <laughs> so like it that's that's it there were there were two sean connery's there's there's dr no and then there's there's everything the rock you know that that's that's the two you get and if you grew up with the rock sean connery that's how sean connery was born right it's like never having seen dog day afternoon right and knowing <laughs> wait pacino was young once? yeah <laughs> you know i didn't think about th- those two as best friends i i guess the way that you described it is like Mentor-protege, I think, is maybe more appropriate. There was something that happened in this movie a couple times, and I don't think it was... It was not Fardan to Dalworth. It was Fardan to the audience, where it wasn't like an accurate guess or some type of prediction. It was like the result of good planning from Fardan's point. So we have one of these sequences where they're going through a pass and there's eight to ten men on horseback who meet them and they uh, call out, they ask if, if the group is lost, wondering what they're doing out there. And before the interaction happens, Fardan describes, this is how they're going to ride up. And if you see this, start blasting. Or I think what he says is like, let loose. He does this again later with like the upside down crosses. He does this again with like planning out like where they're going to go. Uh, there is a lot of planning involved, and I think Lee Marvin's character like makes the audience feel safe in a way. Like I'm so good at my job that I'm actually going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens. Did you all notice anything like that? I think that going into this film, or I'm sorry, going into this mission in the film. I think that he had the outline, the blueprint of this pretty much wrapped up before they ever left. And I really, one of the things I really enjoyed about this film in particular is his strategic placements along the way. Like I see an opportunity here 
to give us an advantage and he does it periodically throughout it. And yeah, just, that's true. and so it's like, yeah, the overall plan was probably in his head, but as they're going, he's identifying, you know, things that will give them a better chance. So he's adding percentages to the success rate uh-huh, as they yeah. go. And, and that was, that was cool too. Well, uh, Andrew, you mentioned some of the action sequences, and that was our, I think, our first shootout. I wouldn't call Lancaster's character being uh, jumping out the window after being, uh, I, I don't know if he's shot at in that bedroom <laughs> scene, but I'd say our first proper yeah. shootout is that is that one where the leader, uh, the last thing he says is uh, go with God before he does the exact move that he was predicted to do. So that's one of our sequences, but you you wanted to mention it. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, that the film again is it's a lighthearted film, and it it, it basically offers a, a I guess a kind of fantasy of military precision and professionalism, where you know Rico and Brian, I think you're exactly right. He just has this uncanny ability to size up any situation and turn things to his advantage. I mean, and, you know, and that I suppose begins with his recognition that he would need. He thinks he needs his partner, Dolworth, to be along for the ride. Um, So, you know, this all culminates in the rescue scene of Maria Grant, which just requires precision timing. It's all about this fuse is going to take this long. Once you light the... (laughs) You know, the, the dynamite <laughs> on the arrows, you know, you've got seven seconds to shoot it. It's just the, the precision right. is, is just, again, it's it's a fantasy, but a very enjoyable one. And, and the thing, everything, you know, more or less works. It's also interesting to me, the you see a lot of crossover in skill sets. So, like, in my approximation, outside of setting some charges, you know, you have Woody using more dynamite offensively in the movie than you have Dolworth. You have Dolworth really in there for his gunfighting abilities more than his explosive use. Right. And so, and you have, you know, Lee Marvin's character who, who does some fighting, but it's more the stealth stuff you'd expect the scout to do. Like, you know, (laughs) I'm the drunk guy bringing you a bottle of tequila, choke him out. You know what I mean? So I, I feel like there's so much blending of the skill sets where somebody else ends up doing what, Maybe a different member of the team would have been more, right? You know, that's why they were there for. So yeah, there's yeah, maybe the division of labor breaks down as there's a kind of you know synergy among the professional group. Right. I mean, in in a way, you know, it kind of points to there is a kind of underlying tragedy to all of this, and it's the tragedy that underlies most westerns. It's this idea that these guys. You know they're amazing. They're they're heroes, but only within a certain context. And when times change, they don't have anything to do. So the first shot we see of Rico is him as you know kind of an arms salesman, right? You, you, that that image kind of sticks with me. I'm thinking, okay, well that's what what he's been reduced to. And when he gets out in the field, he gets an opportunity like this, something he can't say no to. It's not really about the money, obviously. Yeah, you know, he he's a Superman. Essentially, and these other guys are, are the same. They feed off him, um, and they—they're all, I mean, all, almost nigh invincible. The paragraph you might read about this movie starts with four adventurers go to Mexico. <laughs> yeah. Like adventurer is not a job. Uh, now, some it is heroes your, in it westerns is if you're have a tomb a raider. So <laughs> sure, if you're a tomb raider, then oh, I got another tomb to raid tomorrow. Monday, Mondays, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's about time to, to tomb raid. Excuse me. <laughs> Some of our Western heroes have a star 
on their vest. And some of them work as coroners and some of them are professional gamblers. But I think these guys are like, we are tacticians and the professional must be able to also handle the dynamite and also handle the scout work and also handle the six gun and all of these things. It's the mark of the professional. I found that I think of other movies of putting together the team and I generally go towards more modern things, uh, not the, the Western genre. And it, it made me think of Dolworth here. I think his, his screen value is in being kind of a face charm, even though he was brought on by Fardan to be the detonator, to be the explosive charge. In order to do that, he's also got to be the grease. He's also got to sneak in. And he gets to show that off in some pretty cool stunt work. We see, <laughs> we see Lancaster doing, I don't know how much of it is his own stunts, but we see him doing a lot of climbing, a lot of uh, crawling. He was a trained acrobat before he ever started acting, or I guess before he went to the military, before he ever started acting. Uh, this guy's spry. I, uh, I, it took me about 15 minutes into this movie, uh, it maybe a little bit longer. It's after the first real gunfight that I just started thinking, oh my God, this is the Western A-team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like like it it it, sure. it sums up because like you're right lancaster is 100 percent face you've got <laughs> lee, lee, you know lee marvin's the colonel like it's in lieu of the fact that you don't have a helicopter or something to fly you know you've got these other guys in in, right. in western professions but you're right like you've got the schmoozer you've got the you know those those parts you got, you got- those, those parts you, you will see these these personas collected again in the future yeah, venerable action types. I mean, it's not to say that the Western becomes any other genre, but you know, the Western was the main form of action and adventure cinema for for thirty years. So it shouldn't surprise us that it established or helped codify some of these conventions that are yeah very venerable. The idea that you assemble a diverse group of people, each with a special skill, they have something to learn from one another. Those skills bring them into conflict. I mean that. Those films are being made today. The the Western is the home, the bread and butter of the anti-hero. Some people who wear stars are good. Some are bad. Some are both. And and that's that's you know Westerns is, is where that you know the Clint Eastwood Unforgiven like you know there we don't put labels on people here. Yeah, I I think there's something to that. Um, it's it's not to say that there aren't you know anti-heroes and in earlier forms of literature or genres, but, but certainly at its best, the Western from its beginning has taken very seriously the idea that the, these men, because of the skills that they have, have a certain darkness, that the ability to kill other people is a serious thing. And it, it's kind of what marks the Western hero ultimately as a tragic figure. You know, you know, in the ritual of the Western, you know, the Western hero supposedly always has to ride off. He doesn't always ride off. He often does. But, you know, the answer to why he has to go is that something like, well, violence is occasionally required to protect society. But then the hero, because of his affinity with violence, his association with it, ultimately has no place in the society that he helps protect or bring into being. So the, the w- Western is serious about that. Is- kind of the places of debauchery and risk in a world where like that's kind of been weaned away is that, you know, we don't, you know, we used to duel each other. <laughs> and then eventually we got to the point where we said, you know, nobody has to die. So they started replacing the bullets and the pistols with wax bullets. And so, well, hold on. Well, we've been doing, we've been killing each other. It's like, 
over. And the way the duels work was like, well, okay, uh, you know, he got hit with a bullet, so he was wrong. This guy was right. Yeah. So actually, daylight saving starts on November fifteenth, whatever they were arguing. About. <laughs> well, um, you know, I, there there is there is that question, you know, where where is the place in society for these types of people, these types of rituals? Yeah. You know, certainly in, in a lot of westerns, in beginning decades before this one, we we look to Mexico. You know, Mexico is now the next frontier, the last frontier. What's interesting about the professionals is is it takes place after the Mexican Revolution. So, you know, when the professionals are riding off at the end, riding back to Mexico, you know, it, it's a very upbeat ending. Where are they going? What are they, what are they riding off to? I mean, so, so is it completely over? I did say in the synopsis, it was at the end of the Mexican, Re- uh, Mexican Revolution. Had it already ended? In this? Well, yeah. So, so the film, I believe, takes place in 1917, which for some people is the end of the Mexican Revolution. Some people would take the end um, through the first term of the Mexican president in 1920. But, but this is sort of the end. And, and, and this is, you know, Raz's character is somebody who would have fought under the command of Villa, but that's over. And so that's why he's turned to, to banditry. So, you know, just like a lot of Westerns are said in earlier moments in the 19th century when the West is ending, you know, this film is quite late, but it's at another one of those moments where they've kind of, you know, once again exhausted the adventurous frontier. And as they ride off, you know, smiling, looking at each other, not off into the sunset, but into the camera. The, the question remains, like, mm-hmm. well, what are these guys, what could they do? Well, here's an interesting hypothetical there, almost like a counterfactual, is that our, our Western heroes, when their world is, is when we're aging past their world and it's coming to an end, uh, what, what do they fall to? Where do they go? Uh, what's, what's next for them? Next might be Mexico. What was next for Jesus and Fierro and Chiquita? What was next for them? Well, it's still that same, very similar lifestyle, only they're bandits. And I, I don't know, like the, the line, the line is stealing from someone else or taking what's not yours. Uh, we do see their capability in how quickly they overrun the train, um, which the, the, the train that is armed with automatic weapons, by the way. Uh, this is a scene I wanted to, to, to mention. I think the scene is meant to establish that, oh, these guys are tough, that they can take out. That is a well-armed yeah. train that they take out. Um, we see uh, Jesus run over a guy with a machine gun. Their uh, marksmen aren't very good, I guess I should say. <laughs> got um, a bunch of stormtroopers. Yeah, they've got stormtrooper syndrome. Well, um, it, Probably because Lee Mar- Marvin wasn't there to train them how to use them. Right. Uh, it wouldn't be written until, t- I think, about 12 years after this movie came out. But literally the song playing in my head as they rode off into the sunset was Warren Zevon's Rolling the Headless Thompson Gunner. <laughs> <laughs> It, I mean, it's literally, you know, I mean, the, the idea that, you know, you've got this mercenary for hire and he goes where the action is and, and you know, when, when, when a revolution needs to be fought, there they are. Yeah. And well, uh, before we leave the revolution behind, it is mentioned, we have discussions of the past. We don't have flashbacks in this movie at all. We only learn of the past through storytelling, camaraderie. And also, like, character building. Um, one of these, which didn't make a ton of sense to me, is learning about Fardan's wife. Mm. Now, that story is happening 
when uh, Aaron Guard says justice after Jesus Asa is shooting some of the people from the train. The Federales, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm being open here. I was just kind of confused as to the importance of that. Yeah. Um, I think there's some stuff that gets brought up in the past. The Dalworth waxes poetically about the like the the nature of dynamite or like his purpose in the world and how like this this canyon's gonna fill with rocks because of dynamite not faith there's some stuff that like i almost feel like the lines were written and nobody raised their hand and said does this need to be here or 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 does this make any sense um the and then there's the long amount of time that they spent fighting obviously we know that Fardan and Dolworth fought with Raza, but do you feel like there was enough of that? Should we have had more of that discussion, maybe flashback to them fighting together or something? Or I actually found it a little confusing. I, I, I felt like it, take, it took away from my enjoyment of the movie. Hmm. Uh, what do you think about that, Andrew? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think, well, as for that, that exchange between... Aaron Gard and Dolworth, where Dolworth tells uh, Aaron Gard about Rico's wife, uh, in, in kind of you know graphic detail what happened to her. I think I think that gets back to that question that Dolworth asks about you know who who are the good guys? Maybe there's only been one revolution since the beginning. The guy, good guys against the bad guys. The question is who are the good guys? So so we're we're at a moment as you said where Raza has just executed Federales, and Aaron Gard is is disgusted at this. And so Dolworth's role there is to suggest that, well, the people being executed were, were worse. guilty of, well, yeah, yeah. In, in his mind, worse. And that includes the murder, the brutal murder um, of Fardan's um, wife, and, oh, and who, yeah, who's kind of alluded hundreds. to her. Yeah, it, it, exactly. So, so to me, the, the film is constantly dealing with, with this question, um, you know, who, who exactly are the good guys? And I think the script is pretty thoughtful in the way that it 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 kind of plants some seeds early you actually have a character who explicitly asks that question but within the context of you know why why would why would anglos go to fight in the mexican revolution right the idea that maybe that distinction that border america mexico anglo mexican maybe that's irrelevant maybe there just has been one continuous revolution good guys and bad guys maybe there's this bigger story i i think the film then you know is planting these seeds is developing this theme and then brings us to a conclusion where we actually answer that question, who is the good guys and the bad guys? And the characters answer it for themselves, that they're actually doing what they were, set, what they were paid to do, and that's to you know, rescue a kidnapped woman from a horrible man. I love the use of that phrase, later, upon completion. Yeah. We've actually done exactly what you told us to do. Yeah. yeah. The dialogue pieces from Lancaster and Marvin um, – I think they're a hundred percent necessary. I think that when you do the jobs that these guys do, when you live the lifestyles, these guys do, and you're not, if, if you are not just a, you know, a a pistol with a mouth, um, then you have this sort of introspection. You, you have philosophical qualms in your head that, that occupy a lot of your time. And, and, that that's what makes this movie not purely just an action western flick for me. Mm-hmm. Like the 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 dialogue in this is what makes the it it elevates this beyond just a an action movie. 
I mean, I think that's a good point. And one thing I could ask you guys about is, is we do have these great action sequences, but the, the big action sequence doesn't take place at the end of the movie. It actually takes place in the middle. Mm-hmm. And we have this lengthy uh, sort of you know, escape sequence. The last act of the movie is that. Um, but when, when we finally get the confrontation between Dolworth and Raza, they actually stop and have a long, uh, you know, in your words, Ryan, f- kind of philosophical conversation that it, it's not so much a duel at the end of pistols. It's actually, a, a, we begin dueling in words, yeah, which I always find interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think I, I might bring up a little more information about, the, about that when we get to our superlatives too, because that that was having the big wow moments of action in the middle, um, the, the, the end chase can sometimes just be 12 minutes tacked on. But uh, knowing that they're fighting the elements, knowing that planning is still the way that they end up succeeding. And now let's finally, for the first time, though it's been a little late, listener, let's talk about Maria here. Maria as a character who we finally have as, as the Mark, as kind of writing hostage. How do we feel about, Brian, how do we feel about like Maria's portrayal? Like this character is not just someone to be saved. She's got a strong personality. So uh, this this movie again breaks some some barriers of the time in its portrayal of, of strong female leads. You have you know Chiquita who is obviously very secure in her sexuality, and then you have Maria. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't give a, a any you know. Uh, she doesn't Carol. say no. Her name's CC. <laughs> so uh, uh, <laughs> nice. So, I mean, it, it definitely says, you know, it, it speaks to that, that strong female persona. And, you know, I, I'm not going to say that, that they aren't beautiful because they, they casted well in that, in that scenario, too. But, um, you know, she goes on her own uh, independent monologue about what she's willing to do for the cause and what she's willing to do for Mexico. So, I mean that's that's what gives this movie the good bones that it has writing is part of it but it's also the the fire and the uh vindication you can see in the character's eyes as they pronounce what what they're about because even burt lancaster is like i live fast and loose i mean he believes in it. He believes in it wholly. He believes in it totally, and he portrays it that way. Uh, same thing with with Maria in terms of what she's willing to do for the cause. Maria it doesn't just sit idly by and uh, is just swept away. I mean, yes, she, she does get knocked out and tossed into the minecart, but uh, she makes a, a couple of attempts to leave. She reaches for Dalworth's gun to kill him. I mean, th- she's, she's yep. definitely got her vindication. Well, yep. I think what the... The heroes realize is that she she really is one of them. She is a professional. She has a similar code of ethics. And in fact, I think they recognize that that her her cause is actually more just because her cause, the revolution, is kind of in, in, inherent in her as a Mexican, right? The injustice of her experience is the injustice of a, you know kind of American colonialism, if we want to put it in those terms. Um, yeah, rightfully so. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, Claudia Cardinale is, I mean, she's just a re- remarkable screen presence. I, I don't think there's a, a film she's starred in where she doesn't, you know, command 
our full attention every time she's there, not only because she's a stunning woman, but because she just has such a, a powerful screen presence. But you know, the, the film's you know, twist that this isn't just a damsel in distress, that what, what they're actually doing is finding a kind of a, a kindred revolutionary spirit is it, you know, one of the delights of this film. She's definitely a $100,000 woman. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Lancaster learns what makes her a $100,000 woman. And it doesn't have to be from like wielding a gun either. It's through what she says and how she acts and uh, <clears throat> just that, that heart and soul uh, with her. You know, it, it wasn't given the uh, golden eye, let's give Natalia a gun and now she's an operative. Like, we don't have to do that. So you can just build up the things that make the character who they are already. It's the, um, uh, the Jamie Lee Curtis true lies treatment. <laughs> uh, <laughs> hey, you did this one thing that was dangerous. Now you're an agent. Yeah. <laughs> <Ta-da>! <laughs> uh, well, and um, I don't think we see enough of Chiquita, unfortunately. Uh, she, she's present. Uh, and we, we learn that she's capable. Um, but she, she almost, I mean, hey, she's out of bullets. She almost gets dull work in the end, doesn't she? It's, or uh, did it, she even want to? Is that what you guys... Oh, no, I think she would have blown... Yeah, she, oh. <laughs> she would have shot him in a heartbeat. Um, yeah. It's, uh, in true fashion, we have been dancing around so many of my superlatives that I don't want to okay. give too much away. There is something about a no apologies character... And Chiquita is probably the best in this movie for that. It's, I am what I am. I'm very, very comfortable with it, you know? And, Mm -hmm. and uh, she's, she's probably one of my favorite characters from this film. Yeah. I think there's, there's certainly, you know, something of some of the stereotypes, Dustin, you were mentioning earlier, you know, especially the idea that there's a kind of a sensuousness or a, you know, uh, kind of sexuality to the Mexican people is is one of the mm. more unfortunate stereotypes of not only westerns but probably American cinema uh, in in general. But you know, with with that said, I mean she she's essentially second in command. And yes, she's also demonstrated to be a kind of professional, and that is why Dolworth is so a- attracted to her. Right? He he kind of is gravitating towards these strong women characters. Yeah, and unless he's making a joke, he's dead wrong. She can dance. Yeah. <laughs> and what does oh, he yeah. say? Yeah. She could take yeah. out a lick of soldiers, but she can't dance a lick. Sorry, yeah. Dilworth, you're wrong. Dance, bro. <laughs> but speaking of dancing, we were dancing around our superlatives. I'm ready to get into them. Unless there was anything else in particular that like really stood out, that like, oh, I, I had to mention this. Uh, I thought it was interesting that this was the first Western to feature nudity. That was a, a tidbit that I oh, came I across in, in my, hmm. my read-up for this. Just wanted not, – not that it needed to or anything. Just thought that was an interesting thing because, honestly, I'd never thought about it. Yeah, so 66. Um, yeah, I, I guess by this this point, at least female nudity is something you could get away with. You know, I, I – it's, wonder, it's from a distance, so yeah, they, I, I, I wonder they, if they it consider is, it fairly tame. Is it by, the first Western to feature nudity? I'm going to have to think about that because it's it's possible there could have been some very early Westerns that did. Um, but yeah, okay. Let's give it that for now. Uh, no, yeah. I'm, I, I tell you what. Uh, if you do find another one, yeah. uh, post post it in the comments yeah, so we we'll can, do. Uh, we can I have discussion. I know who I'm trusting on this. Right? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trusting <laughs> internet comments. Trusting the internet. For, yeah. Yeah. The internet will tell us. Western lovers spelled with a U. 
Um, I am. Uh, I, 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 I am. No, actually, real, real quick, just a question. For, yeah. Question for you, Andrew. Sure. Um, do, do you allow uh, citations from IMDb? Do I allow citations? You know. Yeah, in your class. You know, so once upon a time, uh, so the short answer is no. But um, in, in my line of work, one thing that happens a lot is is publishers will send me. Uh, manuscripts for for books that they're considering publishing. So so basically, if anyone ever <laughs> is going to write a book about the Western, I will probably at some point be sent the manuscript to kind of read it and give my opinion. And one of the absolute worst prospective books I was ever <laughs> sent was filled with references to INDB commentators in the comment section of movies. Now, there's nothing wrong with the comments. Some people can make very astute comments, but it was referencing them as, as though they were professional film critics. And uh, that's where my mind goes immediately. So I know I, 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 I the astute observations of a box office bro 69. Well, it was, it was something like that. It was, it was it, what the, the book did. This is very funny. It would say, you know, is, is, is critic, you know, John Smith says, and then I was thinking, I don't know this. I don't know this film critic. He's given. He's been given a lot of authority here. He must be a big film critic. And then I would look. Huh. We're excited, and it was indeed like you know, yeah, film fan sixty nine. Part of part of <laughs> this is probably just my ignorance. But how does IMDb police its trivia section? Is as that far is as that I know, all it user relies generated? On users. Okay, I think it is user generated. generated. Okay. Okay. Yeah, and and a lot of it. I mean, uh, I guess uh, unfortunately, a lot of that is uh, a lot of that is incorrect. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I may, I may have just spouted off some BS then, guys. No, nah, could <laughs> could could well be true. Could well be true. Uh, well, I I'll, I just wanted to bring up because we don't have a superlative about it. Was that uh, I I did find myself uh, enjoying the soundtrack both times that I watched it. Um, I would say half a dozen times at least. I said, "Wow, this feels." impactful and adventurous there's only one instance where i didn't feel that way and it was kind of a a jolly little tune right after dullworth says i'll be the one to stand guard here and let you guys get back to get back to the states um and it's this kind of like it just sounds like robin from batman and robin just like you know finit like took the kettle of tea off of the stovetop it was it was very out of place but otherwise, everything I thought was very good. Yeah, it's so. This score is by Maurice Jarry, who was um, David Lean's composer. I think on all of Lean's films, as, as well as a number of other big ones, The Longest Day, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, Lion of the Desert. I think even up to something like Gorillas in the Mist. Um, so certainly, someone who's a who's accustomed to composing sort of epic rousing scores where, mm -hmm. you know, adventurers are in the landscape. Um, I guess we're still putting in some of those touches from 1960s musical practice. That a little whimsy here or there. Yeah, don't age uh, that well, maybe. Uh, yeah, a little whimsy, a little twinkle of the eye, a little smile before he goes and puts six men in the grave. You know, that's appropriate. But it's time to get into our superlatives. Ready, Andrew? Ready as I'll ever be. Who's your MVP of this movie? Uh, so my MVP of this movie is writer, director Richard Brooks, I would say. 
Um, you know, Brooks had a long and interesting Hollywood career. As I'm, I'm sure pretty much every bio of him points out, he was able to successfully transition from being a studio man in the golden age of Hollywood and the studio system to, to working independently. He was able to bridge that divide. Now, in terms of Westerns, he only made three Westerns. Uh, before this, he made a film called The Last Hunt. After this, he makes an interesting Western called Bite the Bullet. Um, so this is his this is his best Western, and I think a lot of it comes down to just his sense that he could make a, a lean Western, a really muscular action picture that played to a lot of his strengths. So I would I would give him the MVP. That's a great answer, uh, Brian. Who's your MVP? Uh, we're two for two on that. Um, this screen adaptation was phenomenal. Um, I'm going to talk more about the dialogue probably later, but. Um, there's so many good lines. The philosophy of this movie is, it has a lot of uh, gems there too. And he also adapted uh, cat on a hot tin roof. And I'm a huge Tennessee Williams fan. And yeah, so I just hats off to him. For, for me, the MVP, and it was because of the dirty dozen that I had that same, my attention was drawn to Lee Marvin. Uh, I, I think I gravitate towards the leader, the captain of the team, and I did feel as if he was the mentor of this band, of this group. And I, I felt like Dullworth seemed like he needed leadership, or he just needed that guy to have his back. You know, when Dullworth gets into trouble, uh, then Rico's going to be there to get him out of trouble and hand him a bottle of whiskey afterwards. And that gave me a warm feeling, um, and the whiskey I did? was happy to have it. yeah for sure Andrew who's your best supporting actor yeah that's that's a tricky one especially in a film where you know as you as you just alluded to none of these guys could do it on their own you know independently they're kind of lost but together they're they're professionals uh this was a tricky one for me but I I'm actually going to go with Jack Palance um Palance is a you know familiar face from westerns he you know plays one of the villains in Shane, um, he later, after this film, you know, appears in a number of Italian westerns. Uh, Comancheros is one of my favorites, and then one of his last great roles is also a western role in, in City Slickers. So I, I, I like him in, in this. I, I think he's actually very sympathetic. And what I what I especially like is when we get to that dialogue at the end where he's talking to Burt Lancaster, and you know, we've only sort of seen him speak in sort of quick utterances up to that point. And then as he kind of slows down, it's just this very loquacious, thoughtful character mm-hmm. emerges. And I think it takes a, a really good actor to move from one extreme to the other as, as Palance does. So he would be my uh, best supporting actor. And they're doing it in cover from one another. And uh, if it all, he's also tasked with the difficult thing of doing that lying down. And he's also tasked with the difficult thing of having to pantomime uh, directions to uh, Chiquita and Fiero, who also is uh, like wanted for nearly as many hundred thousand pesos as uh, as Raza. Yeah, a lot going on there. <laughs> a lot going on. Um, okay, so Brian, uh, who is your best supporter? Uh, I went Lancaster on this one because I, I feel like the the back and forth between Lee Marvin and him. You you have to have both of them, but I think to end the movie the way they did, and I think it was a great ending, you have to have Lancaster, so I went with him. 
Yeah, and you can I mean, it's it's hard to take your eyes off of them. Uh, I went I went deeper than normal because I had a different style of hidden gem, and I went with uh, our best supporting is a uh, Jose Chavez uh, Trau, uh, El Orgullo de Torreon Coahuila, the pride of Torreon. Uh, he's a Mexican actor. Uh, he's the leader of the smaller scout group. He's wearing kind of a formal coat, um, and he is the one that's talking to Dalworth as he's strung up upside down. Um, his line delivery was more unique than any of the other, I think, Mexican actors giving any line deliveries. Um, and he was a different style of, it's, it's fair to say stereotype, um, but I, I also think he had an unpredictability to him. And he's played a lot of those roles, but uh, it was in this movie that I said, this this guy's standing out. He stood out both watches for me. Uh, cool. Your hidden gem, Andrew. Yeah, well, maybe, maybe it isn't so hidden because both of you alluded to it, but something I really like about this film is the way that the landscape in particular moments becomes a kind of character unto itself. That there are features of the landscape that the hero sometimes use to their advantage, but that there are other moments where the landscape itself is their primary uh, antagonist. And I I really Absolutely. like this idea that the, the landscape isn't necessarily neutral. It's not just a beautiful backdrop. It actually affects the action. And the westerns that can do that, I, I have a I have sympathy for. So I like that. Yeah, I feel the same way. Whether it's a rushing river. Or the opposite, uh, dusty plains and sand all over everywhere. You know, make sure you take your salt. <laughs> Brian, what's your hidden gem? I watched this movie before I went through the cast. So outside of the couple people that I can name visually, I didn't really realize that that was Jack Plants. So once hmm. I realized that, I was like, oh my gosh. So, you know, he, he, to me, he is L.G. Murphy from young guns like that's that's his my introduction to him was young guns and you know he's had an entire career that is filled with intense western villains and i i just i he's i wouldn't characterize him as a villain in this film but i will say i was shocked that that was him like i didn't make the connection just watching it yeah and a and a Wonderful performance for, I mean, not a, not a large amount of screen time, but a great performance. For me, it was not an actor. Uh, I went with uh, the focus on the amount of small, personalized, or custom gear that any adventurer, outlaw, cowboy has on them at any time. We see some custom shaving kits, including ceramic bowls and razor straps. Uh, we see packable gun cleaning brushes and oils. Uh, we see specialized map equipment. Fardan's using a compass. There's a clear abundance of tobacco and rolling papers. You got to be prepared. There's plenty of brown party liquor. Like all that, you have to be prepared. Uh, Hans has like feeding buckets for the horses. We see them packing some of it up in like suitcases. And obviously, we know that there are some mules with dynamite. But I, I've always thought that the it's, it's even more so than like the Boy Scouts always be prepared. Don't be prepared like a scout. Be prepared like you're in the Old West. Then you know you'll be fine. So that was my hidden gem. They really showed off that equipment. The, one of the hardest. One of the hardest superlatives. Andrew, who are you going to recast in this movie? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I guess I don't. Maybe this the historian in me is un, unwilling, you don't want un, to. unwilling yes. to touch it. I guess if forced, I, I think that there could be a case for somebody else playing the Ralph Bellamy role of um, Grant. Maybe mm. I think I think Bellamy is fine. You know, he'd been performing. Oh God, since I guess the twenties, twenties or thirties. You know, he's a familiar face. Who I would replace him with, I, I'm not quite sure, but I'm very reluctant to tinker with the past. Uh, if movies tell us anything, it's that that usually doesn't turn out well. Well, I'm glad that you were game. I've had guests before that said that they refused to answer the question. Oh. I threw them out the window. No, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm glad you were game. Who were you recasting, Brian? I, this is just a fandom piece. Uh, the only person that I didn't need in terms of who played them in this was... Robert Ryan, although he does a great job, like I, he doesn't mm-hmm. need to be recast, but I'm a huge Robert Meacham fan. I, that's who I would put in that spot if I were going to recast this. And uh, my wife will tell you much to her chagrin. I'm, I'm a huge submarine movie fan. Basically, <laughs> if it's a, if it's a war movie with a submarine, I, I probably love it. So uh, yeah, I, I kind of pulled him out of my, uh, enemy below hat uh-huh uh, what i actually went after robert ryan as well not because of a poor performance but just i was looking for something um so i i I've put this together as we have to live in a world where there just aren't enough mexicans represented in hollywood we know this is the reality of the time so if we have to accept that then i would replace robert ryan with charles bronson uh, just get, get a tougher, a, a tougher guy. Getting the dozen um, back together. Plus, uh, exactly. D- dirty quarter uh, dozen. Plus, like, he's Lithuanian, so it doesn't really matter. You could even keep the Hans name, and that might work. Um, but if we can fudge the timing a little bit, I did find uh, just an absolute lovely, some have described the most beautiful Mexican actress ever. Um, she would have been a little too old for this movie for the role of Maria, but I would have gone with La Doña Maria Felix. Uh, as as Maria instead, um, I mean, nothing nothing against uh, nothing against uh, Claudia here, um, but I, I felt her accent like being an Italian woman. I felt her accent same with same with plants actually. You you can you can tell like you can just tell. It didn't take it away too much, but uh, I think listeners of the podcast know that sometimes I'm picky about like accent work. Uh, but yeah, that's that's my recast. Uh, we've got two in a row. Best shot and best scene. We'll start with the shot. Uh, Andrew, what's your best shot at this movie? Yeah, this is a tough one because there's a lot of beautiful shots in, in this movie. Um, but what I, what I ultimately decided on, and this is a moment that we alluded to earlier, uh, as the, the professionals with Mrs. Grant are, are, are fleeing, they're running out of water, You've just had to shoot one of the horses. You know, Mrs. Grant is kind of collapsed and she's given some water. And there's this great shot where Woody Strode is behind her. And we can kind of see that he's digging in the ground with his knife doing something. And what he's actually doing is picking off pieces of, of salt for her. Right. And so it's it's a great shot. You see the landscape staging in depth, very beautiful. And then we get the you know the payoff where Strode, you know, very gently says, you know, try some salt, ma'am. It's- ma'am? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This this will help. Right. 
Well, and, and it also reminded me that, you know, if she grew up in this area, she's around other hardened folk. Like, she probably knows that. She was also being a little bit of, um, like, part of her role was to not make it easy for them to get out of Mexico. So, and anything to potentially slow down. But yeah, I, an awesome, a, a lovely shot as well. Brian, what's yours? I went with the, the it's it's kind of a shot up from the ground, but it's the shot of Chiquita putting her revolver under yeah. Lancaster's chin. And mm-hmm. then, and I know it's not part of the shot, but her saying, I am not lucky. Like, I, I, lucky I, I that was, I, I, that, yeah, that was great. Yes, it was. I, I felt that the sound, like the Foley sound of that click was like a little light for the size of her pistol. I thought it should have been a heavier <laughs> click, but even still, because, hey, I had never seen it before. I was like, oh, what a, what a killer moment. Um, my shot is when Maria is racing through the canyon uh, at her first chance to get away on a horse and the fuse is catching up with her. And you have kind of, it's not overhead, but it's kind of at a 30 degree angle. Uh, it was claustrophobic in a good way. It was dangerous. Um, you know, that explosion, based on how they shot it, should have killed her. But we didn't want that. Uh, so it was it was just a, a big, exciting moment. And the plan worked. And uh, Raza and the men had to go around. So I, I just thought that was such tension building in one shot. Best scene, Andrew. Yeah, this is another tough one because uh, lots to recommend in this particular film. But I, I guess I would say in general, it's probably bigger than a scene. It's a sequence. It's the uh, the quote-unquote rescue of Mrs. Grant sequence. So every, all of the planning comes to a head in in it's what I described earlier as a kind of a fantasy of military professionalism. It's just as exciting as you could possibly imagine. But within the scene, there is this important twist. So we not only get a payoff, but we also set up the last act of the picture, which to me is masterful filmmaking. Excellent. Yeah, the, the last half has so much more weight than I really expected it to. Because at first I was thinking, how do we get here so early? And and then we, we get a great payoff. Best scene for you, Brian? Uh, let's see. It's the monologue. Uh, well, it's not purely him, but um, it's the uh, Burt Lancaster's conversation about there only being one revolution. Like, I, I thought that had so much import on this movie. Um you know, especially given the twist uh, that they face at the end is, you know, are, are you really the good guy? And um, it's, it's not something, it's something that's addressed in a lot of Westerns, but I felt like I, I just felt it a little bit more deeply in this one. And if it hadn't had that scene, I think it would have lost a lot. My best scene. It's the Dalworth's last stand. It is, for all the reasons that Andrew mentioned, the dialogue, the um, palaver, I guess you call it. Um, it's, it you, you, when you see it for the first time, you really don't know how it will go. Most of the comfort of the previous encounters had your leadership, your seasoned, like, we think we know how this is going to go. Well, Dalworth doesn't have his advantage. He doesn't have his ace in the hole and fart in here. This is just him. And I felt like he was, I mean, he was really up against the odds. Um, and so that tension and that, uh, the payoff you get for it is really something to cheer for. And so that was uh, a great scene for me. 
How about the best wardrobe or best makeup moment, Andrew? Well, the the one that stood out for me, and maybe this is for the the wrong reasons, but there there is a moment in the lead up to the raid when uh, Lee Marvin's character Rico, simply by donning a poncho and a sombrero and picking up a bottle of tequila, is able to pass himself off as a member of <laughs> Raz's men. Which you know, again, it's pure fantasy. You know, he, he even speaks in Spanish. <laughs> No problem. Right. Um, but as a, as a, I guess as a moment about wardrobe, that certainly stood out for me. Brian, I'm going to jump the line here because that's actually mine as well. Oh, no kidding. All right. Uh, Great minds. Mine well. uh, and the thing I love about it is he wears his campaign hat, uh, which is kind of that. I, I was thinking like a colonel's hat, but it's like the Montana hat, the peak with the, the four pinches on top. He looks great in that hat. He always looks great in that hat. But he wears his sombrero with the chin strap on the back of the head, the same way that he wears his campaign cover. And uh, he's, his gloves are bright yellow and he just blends right in. Uh, so, yeah, that's mine. Brian, you can finish this out with yours. Uh, it's got to be his uh, uh, Lee Marvin's like sweater in the very the cardigan. beginning, the cardigan in the, in the beginning of the film. <laughs> like, it's a, like he showed a... up to set and he's like, I'm not comfortable without this. <laughs> it just re- it reminded me of his Dirty Dozen sweater, you know, the army green sweater. I was right. just like, I need my sweater. It's hot as hell outside, <laughs> but I need my sweater. <laughs> that cardigan's great. It's got five buttons on it. The buttons are brown. He's wearing a white collared shirt underneath it with a black tie. That shirt. Uh, the reason I know this, Brian, is because there's a website that puts out like how to how to put together the classic look from cinema. Mm. And the first time I saw that website was when we covered Collateral in 2004 with Tom Cruise's suit. And the amount of detail that people could figure out about the suit was like, whoa, couldn't believe it. And they've done the same thing with that outfit, with the cardigan and his his Montana hat. And it's fun to read. I'm not, I'm not like a GQ guy. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't know all that info, but it's pretty cool to read. On that article, I uh, saw that that particular shirt he's wearing actually wouldn't have been introduced until the late twenties. I was so there's like I I think that's what got me on it too. Like I was huh? Well, because I was you know he's using a World War One machine gun. Like that's the gun he is he's demonstrating at the beginning of that. And I yeah. was looking at that cardigan and I was thinking <clears throat> I feel like this is a decade early. Oh wow. So yeah, I, I, that's eagle eyed viewers. No, I mean, it, it wasn't, I, I wouldn't have called it out that way. Like, I'm not going to be like, Hey, the cardigan cardigan or the male cardigan didn't get introduced until blank. It's not like that. It's just, it, I went into this thinking Western, even with early 1900s in mind, like I went into it thinking Western and the <laughs> cardigan was just, it, it, it is just a little off. It was just a little off to me. Well, uh, we've got two left, a very hard one and uh, a fun one. Uh, Andrew, you have to change one thing about this movie. What are you going to yeah. change? Yeah, I'm reluctant to change anything, but um, in, in the spirit of the exercise here, I, I, I think that as much as I like the opening of the movie, where we, we really just get right down to it right away, I, I kind of wish I had a somewhat greater sense of where each of the four professionals were at the start of the movie. Like geographically? No, in terms of their careers, oh. their, you know, their, their personal lives, their personal development, let's say. Uh, I, and I think 
the movie might have been a little bit richer if we had a clearer sense that they were, you know, unhappy or dissatisfied or out of place or wandering at the start mm-hmm. of the movie and that it was this enterprise that as it brought them together that kind of gave their lives meaning again. Really double down on why they need to take this job or want to take this job. It's a, I, I, I agree. I think that'd be wonderful. Brian, what's your change one? Robert Ryan's lung cancer. Um, it, it, it's 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 what prevented a sequel to this, and I I seriously would have watched it too, like immediately <laughs> upon completion of this. I've been like, all right. Uh, the first thing I did look up was did they do any like even a, a prequel movie? You know about their time with Pancho Villa would have been cool. Um, yeah. So so I wanted more. Uh, usually my change one thing is involves wanting more, especially on a movie I like. <laughs> so uh, Robert Ryan's lung cancer is my change one thing. Um, I'm actually going to piggyback right off of what you said, not about the disease, but it's about the, the prequel. Uh, I'd love, give me just five minutes. It, it, we have, this is longer than I thought it would be. Um, and a lot of it is focusing on just the harshness of the environment. If we could take some of that harshness time and put that time towards, let's see these, the, the ones who knew each other before, Chiquita, right. Raza, let, 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 let's see them in some situation we don't have to start the movie with it but like i said this this movie was devoid of flashback and i'm not saying you have to have it but it would be cool to know more about that so like i would be totally on board with a prequel seeing them uh fighting back in the older days uh let's finish out with best quote andrew well i've i've already said one important quote you know dolworth's question the question is who are the the good guys um, there are a lot of great lines in this movie, and uh, the, the one I'm, I guess, going to go with is, is the last line of the movie, which I, I guess is you, you need the context. So um, the last thing Grant says to the professionals is, you know, you bastard, and he's talking to Rico, and Rico mm-hmm. responds, yes, sir, in my case, an accident of birth, but you, you're a self-made man. It's cold-blooded. That's awesome. And, and you're not wrong. This movie is littered with great quotes. I actually, um, I had written several on sticky notes that I had. I, I'm still a pen and paper guy. So <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I had sticky notes all over the place saying, oh, I need to, maybe that's my line. Maybe that's my line. And in the end, I went with none of them. Um, I ended uh, <laughs> I, I ended up with, a, so what else is on your mind besides 100 proof women and 90 proof whiskey? and 14 karat gold mm-hmm. amigo you just wrote my epitaph that is a right. great great line that's cool yeah, there are very very many good ones i i i mentioned mine earlier the how in the name of god does anyone live here long enough to get used to it men tempered like steel a tough breed men who have learned how to endure we were flooded with incredible quotes uh, before we assign a star rating to this, I want to give Andrew a chance here to plug your podcast or anything else that you'd like to. Sure. So I am with my intrepid co-host, Matthew Chernoff, who is a screenwriter and a journalist for Daily Variety. Uh, so I'm a co-host of a podcast called How the West Was Cast, which is a podcast all about the Western movie genre. We talk about different types of Westerns, individual films. We interview uh, filmmakers, other people involved. So you can find us uh, anywhere you get your podcasts, wherever fine podcasts are sold. 
uh, Apple, Spotify, and so on. Uh, and you can find us on social media at Western Podcast. And then I guess if you want to know more about me, my website is andrewpnelson.com. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, and we will give you the honor as our guest. Uh, we do a zero to five star, uh, 0.5 star being the worst, five being the best. Uh, and you are allowed to go half stars if you want. How do you rate the professionals? I give the professionals four out of five stars. Excellent. That, it's, it sounds appropriate to me based on the, the things you were saying. Sometimes, and uh, I think Russell's the biggest culprit of this, sometimes, especially with like film history, we have someone who will, uh, because of the importance of a movie, they will uh, inflate the score. Oh. <laughs> and say, oh, well, because this movie, I, I think I listened to Russell dog Hellraiser for an hour and 20 minutes and then give it five stars or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, that's perfectly fair. Well, we all know that, that bad movies can have important roles to play in film history. All right. Hey, listen, I, I've always contended that I give, I, I run on a, on a 10 point scale. One through five is based on the film's actual credibility and chops. And then the next is the rewatchability and my love for the film. So you can get a six and it could be a completely dog <laughs> film. Whip, whip crack. But but I, I I love it. I love it five. It right. gets one. That's fair. So you got kind of the parallel ratings. I like that. Well, so what is what is your yeah. rating this time, Brian? I'm going four stars on this one. This was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, I had a blast watching this movie. Uh, I actually watched it three times. Then I told my wife, I actually think you'll like this one. <laughs> So there might be a, a fourth one in, in the works, but yeah, I, I, this was, this was absolutely terrific. So I came into the podcast, giving it a three stars. Cause there were some things that were taking away from my overall enjoyment. That being said, I had a chance to chat with y'all talk about, uh, the fart ends wife thing. Talk about spending so much time on the harsh reality of the desert. Talk about the importance of the Mexican revolution to, talk about would it have been better to see more time with Chiquita and Fardan and Dolworth and Jesus fighting together. Um, then there was also the, something I didn't bring up to you guys at all, which was, it seems like uh, their code, the, 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 the potential that they are, well, we took a contract and that's what we're going to do. In the end, we've got 60 dead Mexicans. And for the end of the movie to end, you only needed a, like six more dead white dudes to get away with the money. Yeah, riding off into the sunset's great, but there's a hundred thousand gold pieces right there. What's wrong with killing the millionaire? Yeah. Uh, but because I chatted with y'all, it actually moved my meter up to three point five stars because uh, very enjoyable. But there were just some things I couldn't get out of my head. Um, but uh, it was. Such a great recommendation it's, it's, to watch. But it's interesting you brought that up because uh, it's interesting you bring that up, though, because one of the, the few things that took me out of the, the plot of this movie was why the millionaire didn't mow them all down. Yeah. And just take his wife, like literally gets his wife back for free. So, like, I I just you could go either way with this. I could see them not attacking because they were tired and, yeah. you know exhausted from everything but i was like you got five guys on just horses just it. sitting there watching this yeah. dude's you know, wife right away and i'm like and i'm like they could just 
kill them all and, a, and then take the woman. There's a famous and, story about uh, a much earlier Western, John Ford Stagecoach from 1939. In that film, there's a very famous scene where a stagecoach is making a, a mad dash across the plain and is being besieged by Indians. And the film, the filmmaker, John Ford, was once asked, why, why did the Indians not just shoot the horses? Because if they were to shoot the horses, you know. We don't have a movie. It makes a lot of sense. And Ford's answer was, because then the movie would have been over. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So. I, I, I have contended for years, if they just listened to Jack Bauer, the show would have been called Three. <laughs> <laughs> that, I have not heard you say that before. Yeah, um, and I think the 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 thing it comes at the end. If that if it had come like way earlier, it was at the end occasionally. And in the I, this happened to me with three ten to Yuma. Is sometimes upon like my first initial watch, sometimes the ending doesn't quite resonate with me yet. Um, but it was only after listening to y'all that I really got a better understanding of this one. Now this is where we would normally be selecting a movie for next week. But next time, listeners, on the Retro Movie Roundtable, we have our year-end special, where we review our collective rankings on all of the movies that we covered in 2022 and hand out a slew of super fun superlatives. So line up Auld Lang Sign on your playlist. We are closing out 2022 with a blast and welcoming in 2023. I want to thank Andrew for coming to the podcast, a cool crossover you guys are monthly right you come out with a, a how the west was cast every month yeah one a month awesome uh and i i i did listen to the hateful eight episode um with uh the costume designer who also yeah. filmmaker as well courtney hoffman yep thank you for the name yeah uh courtney was cool to listen to and thank you all the lords ladies and knights of the retro movie roundtable we invite you to reach out to us we want to hear from you Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? Fast is fine, but accuracy is final. In a gunfight, you need to take your time in a hurry. <laughs>